The Ryan Tuberty Show on RTE Radio 1 with Elevon Merchant Services. Growing your business is easy peasy with us by your side. Welcome to our weekly podcast. It's Oliver Callan here, filling in for Ryan this week. And it's a compilation of our best interviews from the last couple of days, all in the one place. Now, on Monday's show, comedian Trevor Noah of The Daily Show, he spoke to us ahead of his Irish performance at the Three Arena in May and his memories of being in Ireland the last time. Journalist Nick Sheridan chatted about his new book, Breaking News, How to Tell What's Real from What's Rubbish. It's for kids, very good. Conor Merriman is a successful graphic designer and illustrator and he talked about his decision to take a stand against trauma from his past and it led to his personal success and triumph. We had the fascinating story of the Irish combat cameraman. He was from Monaghan and the role he played with the US Air Force in the recording of the aftermath of the bombing of Nagasaki. On Friday's show, teacher Ty Donovan from Cork was on his phenomenal TikTok success and how he found love on social media as well. That was it. That's for the week. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy it. Trevor Noah is the most successful comedian in Africa. Not only is he the host of the award-winning The Daily Show in America, he's a hit podcast, many, many Netflix specials. His memoir, Born a Crime, about his upbringing in South Africa under apartheid, was a New York Times best-selling smash hit. And in between all that, he's doing a live arena tour around the world, as you do. And it includes a date in Dublin, the Three Arena, on the 7th of May. So he's rightly described as the busiest man in comedy, so let's not delay him. Trevor Noah, good morning. Good morning to you, Oliver. Thanks for having me on. You mean you literally are the busiest man. I mean, you're presenting your show in New York uh, this week, uh, every night for Comedy Central. And your time off is basically this enormous live world tour, isn't it? Well, I I don't know if I'm the busiest. I I like to keep busy. You know, my friends accuse me of being a workaholic, but I I don't know. You know, when you you, um, have the pleasure of turning a lot of what you love into your job, then I guess you do work all the time, but you're also having a lot of fun all the time. So... So yeah, that's that's pretty much me. Getting on the road, doing shows, and then uh, enjoying myself. And uh, it's called Back to Abnormal, which is a fantastic title. It, it sums up an awful lot. Obviously, post-COVID-19 was going to be returned to everything that was kind of wrong before. But now we have a war in Ukraine, and you still have to perform jokes. Yeah, well, you know what? I, I, I've, always, I've always said this, and, and that's one of the, my favourite things about coming out to Ireland, is Ireland, I've always credited with being one of the places that helped me get comfortable with doing comedy the way I do it. You know, when I, when I first started doing stand-up, I, I, I came to America from South Africa. I loved doing comedy in South Africa. came to America. And in America, it's, it's very, like, joke-dominant, joke-heavy. Yeah. And, and in South Africa, we're, we're more into storytelling. We're more into, you know, really breaking down just, you know, our existence, you know, yeah. through the lens of humor. And when I, when I came to Ireland, I remember meeting audiences who, for the first time, I think it was someone who came up to me after a show and said, he said, he said, hey, Trevor, why don't you talk more about apartheid? And I said, you, you can't, well, apartheid is a terrible thing to talk about. And he said, he said, oh, but that's, that's all we want to hear about here. That's a great story. And it's a nice, you know, it's a nice uh, thing to introduce people to and, and just share it. And, and I was like, but it's a comedy show. And, and he just sat with me. And, and this was a guy in the audience, yeah. a, a regular <laughs> Irish guy in the audience. And, and he changed my world forever. And, and ever wow. since then, I've enjoyed being in a world where you can use humor to process everything, pain pleasure, um, you know, perplexity, whatever it is. And, and I think that's something that I've found is a commonality between Irish people and South Africans or any, any group of people who've been through, 
you know, like long periods of pain is that we found humor as a tool to process what's happening as opposed to, um, you know, minimizing it. And so, yeah, you know, when there's war, when there's, when there's famine, you know, when there's, when there's racial oppression, when there's injustice, whatever it is, humor is oftentimes found there in a place where you, 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 you least likely expect it. And so um, that's what I've done my whole life. It's how my family has coped, it's how I cope, and um, it's how my people have coped. So, yeah, I'm back on stage, and, you know, the, I don't think the times will ever be good. And so I guess uh, that's, that's, that's why I'm lucky to have the coping mechanism that I have. When you say you don't think the times can ever be good, I mean, comedy does have a lot of hope in it, and particularly as a storyteller. I mean, there's no more hope than in your own life story, is there? Yeah, I think, I think it's a combination of two things. I think it's hope slash delusion, or okay. it is, uh, <laughs> it could also be, um, I think it could also be, in a, in a way, a lot of comedy has a, a sort of Zen attitude pointing out the absurdity of life. Yeah. You know, when, when, when you get to accept the absurd, there's a, certain, there's a certain element of peace that comes with it. You know, once you, once you accept that most of what we live through is crazy, most of what we accept as normal is completely abnormal. Isn't there a sort of peace that comes with that, Oliver? You know, mm-hmm. isn't there a, you know, once you realize that all of it is, is, is almost for nothing and, and all of it will never be good and it's all crazy, there's, there's a peace that comes with that. And, I, and I, I think there's, there's something I enjoy about doing comedy because it reminds me that, hey, yeah, you know, all of this is as wild as you think it is and yet everyone thinks it is normal. So... I guess that's life. I suppose there's a wee bit of relief in it as well, isn't there? I mean, I, I think personally, looking at the Daily Show at the moment, uh, and I'm a big fan, so I'm biased here. But the reason I think that your comedy works now is that the relationship between humour and, and truth is always very close. And certainly where Putin is concerned, uh, it's the truth that he's most afraid of, isn't it? Especially getting to the ordinary Russians. Well, I th- yeah, I, I, think that's, I think that's true across the board. You know, I, I don't think it's any mistake that... Um, you know, stand-up comedy, funny enough, is one of the things that is banned soonest when, when you know, authoritarians crack down. You know, mm-hmm. in South Africa during apartheid, stand-up comedy wasn't something, because it's part of free speech. And the things that comedians say generally are going to go against what the ruling class, you know, wants. Because the, you have to engage the truth. You know, as a comedian, you, you, you'll lambast everybody from yourself, your people, your government, your, your parents, your... It doesn't matter who it is, but, but you're right about that. It is hard to be funny if you ignore the truth. And so that truth needs to be acknowledged in order for you to find the funny. But that truth is really uncomfortable a lot of the time for people who don't want anybody thinking about it. So, so yeah, it's, um, you know, it's... It, 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 it goes hand in hand. It, it means that as a comedian, and I find generally it's true, as comedians, we have to be aware of the truths of the world in order to do the jokes that we wish to do. Yeah. Um, is there an annoying side effect of the Ukraine war beyond the, the basic tragedy itself that the kind of problematic Western democracies suddenly look fine just by comparison? And you've used your platform <laughs> to talk about all the messages of race and inequality, but now you're kind of going, oh, maybe things aren't so bad. Yeah, well, you, you know what it is? It, it's, I don't think of it as good and bad, ever. I think of it as, as, as moments to, to help us understand. You know, um, 
everything that happens in the world gives you an opportunity to understand. And I think when we live in a world of good and bad, that, that actually limits our ability to process a lot of information. So what is a good country? What is a bad country? Oftentimes I always say to people, I think the only thing that separates a good country from a bad country is, is how much power they have. You know, because it's easier to be a good country when you don't have much power. And yeah. when you have a lot of power, there's a good chance that you got it because you're bad or you now have it and you are bad. It's actually a strange conundrum, you know. So, so I think what I prefer to do is look through the lens of not good and bad, but rather just uh, a, certain, a certain sense of, um, you know, like a, a revealing idea of what's happening around the world. You know, so whether it is what's happening in Ukraine or, or whether it is what Russia's doing. You know, like I, like, like I said this week on my show, I said it's interesting that the U.S. can see fully and clearly, you know, how terrible what Russia is doing. But they didn't have this clarity when they were invading um, Iraq, yeah. you know, and when they were destabilizing the Middle East. And, and so it's interesting in some of these moments to have that perspective because maybe when you're in the crosshairs, you don't. And it's quite interesting that you use comedy to kind of highlight the fact that uh, there's been a, a creeping racism in the coverage of the Ukraine crisis in that, oh, it shouldn't really happen here. War belongs in over there where the, the, the uncivilised people live. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that has become the, you know, it, it's, it's really interesting how powerful media can be in that way. You know, when, when we get told that a bomb has gone off in Kabul or when we get told that, you know, Syrians are being bombed by the Russians or, you know, I mean, it's been it's been told in such a blasé at uh, like fashion that people around the world can oftentimes feel like that is what's supposed to happen and that this is where you realize funny enough how powerful the media is you know if the news tells you to panic there's a good chance you will panic you know if the news tells you this is unprecedented then you will generally believe that it's unprecedented yeah. and so when the news says to you what's happening in ukraine shouldn't be happening then you really believe that it shouldn't be happening and i i agree it shouldn't be happening but then it makes you, you know, it makes you relook all of the news coverage from the Middle East, where they don't make it seem like it shouldn't be happening. They just make it seem like it's happening because it always, it was always bound to happen because these brown people like fighting in this corner of the globe. And so that's been really, I mean, you know, it, it, it is dark, but that's the world that comedy also lives in. It's just pointing out the, the absurdities of, of that coverage. I mean, you've literally had journalists on TV saying, you know, oh, to see this happening to, to people who are, you know, they're not brown and they're not and they, they speak English and, you know, and, and many of them and they, they, you would live next door to them to see journalists say that seems like something you would put in a ridiculous sketch. And when, in fact, now it's, it's the real world. Yeah, it's incredible. When, when you look back, um, when you look at South Africa now, your home where you, you grew up, you were a, a child, your memoirs very famously called Born a Crime because you were born a crime, having a, um, a black mum and a white father. And you look at South Africa now, you have kind of mixed feelings towards it, don't you? Well, I, I've never had mixed feelings towards South Africa. You know, I, I, I think because I, I, I always try and separate people from the power. Mm -hmm. You know, I think everywhere in the world, same thing in Russia right now. I don't have anything that I, I don't have a mixed feeling towards the Russian people. I look at leadership. I go, where's the power? And then, yes. I, and then I go from there. Um, you know, so South Africa is the same thing. You know, the people are, are my people. You know, I... They, they, they forged me, they've created me, they, they, they informed me, they fed me, they, you know, they give me the flavor and the spice, they give me, they give me who I am. But, but, you know, the power is the thing that has always been what has shaped South Africa uh, for the good and the bad. You know, so when I look at the country now, I go, man, we have a long way to go. You know, we were, we were, we were set many steps back because of apartheid. And then now because of corruption, the country is being set back even further. 
So yeah, I have I have I have mixed feelings towards the power, but never towards the people because oftentimes, man, people are at the mercy of the power. I was just thinking because I was watching uh, the amazing interview you did with your grandmother a couple of years ago when she was, um, I think, 91 years and nine months, she specifically told you. And, um, yeah, she just turned 95. Oh, wow. It's incredible. Uh, but it was, yeah. it's amazing that you were able to bring her story and her memories of apartheid to, because you have that rare thing in television, you have young people watching you. Yes, that's true. Yeah, that's true. You know, you know what was great for me as well, Oliver, was I, like... Whenever I talk to my grandmother, I learn new things about South Africa and about the world and about our family and about the history. And it's really interesting to learn it through the lens of somebody you know. You know, I almost wish we all learned history through people who, who we know because it, it does two things. One, it personalizes it. And two, it removes a lot of the, um, the, 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 the resistance that we have to sometimes learning about, about history because we... We almost think of it as being this, you know, this far off thing. Oh, what was it like? What was the potato famine like? Oh, what was the war like? What was the what was this like? What was apartheid like? It becomes like a theoretical exercise. When you talk to somebody you know and love about an experience that they had, you, you really think of it completely differently, yeah. you know? And so, you know, my grandmother really made me think of South Africa's journey very differently because as a young person, I get frustrated that the country isn't further along. My grandmother cannot believe how far it's come. Yes. You know, and so that, that's, that's an interesting perspective for me to have in life. Amazing. And of course, we should say your mother, Patricia, I presume she's well also. She's sort of a, uh, as you've given it to your fans through, through your stories and your comedy, sort of a kind of a Wonder Woman with a Bible, but with a sur- the survivor rate of Bruce Willis <laughs> in all the diehard films. <laughs> Oh man, I, I feel like I feel like my mom is um, like many single mothers out there, you know, like armed with a Bible and really just trying to make the best out of life. And um, yeah, so she she's still she's still she's still doing well. Thank you for asking. She's um, you know she still sends me Bible verses every morning. She's now she's recently discovered YouTube, so now she uh, she now sends me clips from YouTube uh, that range from you know music that she listened to in like the the the, the 80s and the 70s oh, yeah. all the way through to um, like Bible verses or, or like, like Bible sermons on YouTube. So yeah, it's been, a, it's been an interesting journey relearning my relationship with my mom through, through the lens of YouTube. Could she get any cooler? <laughs> She's literally survived, you know, uh, like there's near brushes with death and then there's what she endured, isn't there? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. And I, I you know, I always say that Sometimes people make the mistake of saying to me, I had a tough life. And I always say to them, I didn't have the tough life. I think my parents had a tough life. My mom had a tough life specifically. And then my grandmother did as well. I, but I, I think I survived their tough life. But I, I do not ever think that I myself had a tough life. Yeah. And she would fit in well with Irish mothers because she's utterly unimpressed with your success and fame uh, in America <laughs> and meeting all the various celebrities. Yeah, I think, I think you know what it is. My mom is, I always, I always say to people, my mom is, is not as unimpressed as people think she is. It's that she, she, cannot, she cannot surpass the, the level of impressed that she is at me just existing, you know? Yeah. So, so I, I have two brothers. My mom is just, she's just proud that we exist. She's always been our biggest fans. She's always celebrated us. She's always, so, so to me, or for me rather, having a job, being a comedian, doing a TV show, 
All that means to my mom is that I can pay the rent. Right. And she's really happy about that. So can my son pay the rent? Congratulations to you. How I'm paying the rent is, is less impressive to her. But the <laughs> fact that I can pay the rent means that she raised a good boy who has a job and he's looking after himself. That's all she needs. Brilliant. And of course, you're used to flying around the world because is it true you used to actually go from New York to back to Johannesburg to meet your mum on a weekend? Yeah, yeah. I, I flew a few weekends ago. Like once the borders opened up again, I started going back home. Um, yeah, you know, just just to go back home and touch base with your people, you know, Oliver, to to remember, you know, not not just who you are, but but who they are to you. I think, you know, we take for granted how many times or how often we we use the memories of people to 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 think about how they how they are, you know, in our lives or what they mean to us. But but when you actually with them, oof. It's, 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 it's something special. It, um, you know, it's, it's constantly updating every piece of software inside of you that, that determines like, who you are as a human being. So, uh, yeah, I, I try and go back as often as I can. That's amazing. And it's a fantastic um, that, you, that you've go. Did you go to such effort to stay with your people and um, to spread the word and, and the story of you and your mum and your, your grandmum? And we wish everybody well. So you're in Dublin on the 7th of May in the Three Arena. I think Vicar Street was the place you played last in, in Dublin. Is that correct? Do you have memories of that? It, yeah, it, yeah, it was indeed. I think it was. And do you have any other memories of Dublin or do, do all these cities become a blur? Because you're doing Iceland, you're going to Germany, you're going to Switzerland, you're going to have a job making them laugh, but... <laughs> <laughs> do I have any memories? I have many memories of Dublin, actually. Um, uh, one of my fondest memories, um, unashamedly, is the uh, brown bread ice cream. Um, yeah. That changed my life. That, yeah, that actually changed my life forever. Um, I'm so glad the, you didn't say Guinness, memories? by the way. I think that's Murphy. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think that's no, Murphy's no, ice no, cream no. you're talking about, the brown bread ice cream, yes. And that is the... Um, it's very possible. Yeah, that's it's the... It's a small little street, like, yeah. Exactly. And it's like the Irish mother's main weapon is brown bread. I think that's why we didn't invade any countries. It's just we were just sitting at home eating delicious... <laughs> Brown bread, and when they put ice cream attached to it, that's it. We're done forever. We're we're peaceful people. It is, it, it is over. I can't I can't tell you this. I haven't I haven't invaded any country since I started eating brown bread ice cream. So you, you may be onto something there, Oliver. And and I remember the people. I I just remember like how wonderful the people were. I remember meeting you know uh, great people during the day, some fantastic drunk people during the night. Um, so yeah, I I can't wait to like just come and be in Dublin again and just you know. Spend, spend time having fun. Well, we can't wait to see you. By the way, um, Ireland, we don't get noticed by big stars very often, so we do get very excited, so be careful of that when we usually find obscure ancestors. Even Barack Obama couldn't breeze past Ireland without uh, us forcing an ancestor on him. So, so watch out <laughs> for that. <laughs> and uh, the best of luck with everything you continue to do. Uh, don't be too much thank of a workaholic. Thank you so much. Keep calling your mum. Thank you so much. <laughs> and uh, keep, keep enjoying that brown bread ice cream. Will do, my friend. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks you very much time. for all your time. Thanks so much. That's Trevor Noah. Back to our yeah. normal tour into the Three Arena uh, in Dublin on the 7th of May. And you drop us a text on 51551. 51551 is our text number. And I'm sure we're all feeling the effects of the distressing news lately around the place. It's the news that we need to see. Uh, but there's no... It's tough going, isn't it? Well, whatever about our own ability to make sense of what we're seeing and reading and hearing about, it's harder again for children. They're catching 
snippets here and there. They're getting third-hand information, opinion masses, facts. I'm sure parents have heard their children coming home from school going, my friend's father said there's going to be a nuclear war. We'll have to live under the table. We'll have to dig a bunker and so on. So like all, the children are getting a dose of the burnout and anxiety from everything that's happening. So journalist Nick Sheridan has written a book to help young people navigate and understand the news. He joins us now. Good morning, Nick Sheridan. Good morning, Oliver. I'm sulking because of your Wexford accent oh, yeah. that you did earlier on. <laughs> that is just... Uh, talk about fake news. That accent, I'll tell you. You I can start there. I forgot. Yeah, yeah, that is... Um, <laughs> well, well, we'll actually judge you on the basis of this interview. We'll get, we'll get through it somehow. <laughs> but look, I really enjoyed this book because it's actually very funny. It's like a... It's a, it's a comic book, but it's my cup of tea because it has a point. Good, I'm glad. Yeah, well, look, at I mean, the, the, the whole idea of this book in the first place, Oliver, was, you know, not to lecture anybody and certainly not to speak down to anybody or to condescend or anything towards kids or children. It was basically the idea was to create a sort of a horrible history style book yes. that w- 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 would explain uh, current affairs and news and fake news to kids. But sure, there's no point. Uh, you're, pre- you're preaching to an empty parish if you don't try and make the content a little bit engaging, a little bit humorous. And that's what you that's what you have to do, I think. So that's what, what I tried to do anyway. So before we get into those uh, points about the book, uh, tell us a bit about yourself then. So what part of Wexford are you from? Are you from... Well, I'm actually from very close to, to Wells' house where Channing Tatum was spotted, as a, as a matter of fact. I don't wow. know why he's there, but maybe he's filming. There's a couple of lost cities down down kind of Wexford Way, maybe Enniscorthy or uh, or maybe even um, Kilmockridge or somewhere. He could be filming a new film down there in a new lost city. No, I, I, I'm i from, um, well, I'm originally from Kilmockridge um, and then, um, you know, uh, studied journalism for three years in DCU and then subsequently moved over to work with RTE, actually, with the, with the News Today programme, yeah. uh, which is as... as, as, as some people might know is the, is the Young Persons News Programme uh, on RTE2 and then after that I decided I fancied a bit of a change so moved over to Glasgow uh, so worked as, as Consumer Affairs Correspondent with the BBC here in, um, in in the UK and subsequently now I'm just presenting so presenting radio and television uh, for BBC News in, in, in Glasgow so that's my story. So you say um, and I'm reading from your author's note in the book you were born at a young age You spent your childhood annoying adults with questions, being curious about the world and forcing your parents to watch one-man performances of Broadway musicals in the front room. That's correct. Yes, that's correct. So you were a nightmare child, really. Absolutely, yes. The the on-stage showbiz life wasn't for me, so I decided to try the the, the next best thing. But certainly, yes, my my, my performances of of Joseph uh, and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat Phantom of the Opera, all very well reviewed uh, in my own uh, (laughs) publication, which I had at the time. Um, Yes, because you had your own newspaper as a child. (laughs) I certainly did. I did indeed. The, the, the weekly font it was called, which was published maybe once every couple of months, but we called it the weekly font nonetheless. And we had a readership, I'd say, maybe of about 10, uh, including some stuffed animals, I think, that I, that I had in my, in my bedroom <laughs> okay. at the time. And I would basically just print off um, little kind of news stories and, and, and little kind of bits and bobs like that and then staple it all together and deliver it around my uh, my local neighbourhood in, in, in Kilmockridge. So, yeah, that was um, it, it didn't really work out, really. I wasn't a, there was no um, William Randolph Hearst um, kind of... Uh, aspirations at that stage You didn't go mad um, with the power of producing well no, but there was no power to go mad with uh, Oliver <laughs> quite, quite, quite quite frankly but uh, no no I mean that was just something that I did growing up and I think a lot of kids do that I think a lot of young people uh, maybe when they're, when they're curious about the, the world around them and curious about writing and, and creativity and uh, and all that you know it's it's something that a lot of people do or maybe we, we radio stations and stuff like that that was something that I was massively into growing up little news reports with with a camcorder uh, that I got from my um, with my confirmation money 
me and all this kind of stuff. So wow. it was just, you know, very early, from a very early age, um, news and, and, and showing off in particular was what I was interested in. So this was the perfect blend of the two. I suppose you were lucky because you discovered very early on what you wanted to do. Yeah, well, I, I guess in, in I mean it, it. It was I knew I wanted to do something that was creative, and I mean you might not think even that journalism and creativity uh, go hand in hand. In fact, that maybe they shouldn't go hand in hand a lot of the time. But um, definitely, what, what I like to do is I mean I was really really interested in history in secondary school and English too as well. Loved debating all, all that kind of stuff. So when it, when it finally came uh, came time to do my leaving cert. Uh, I kind of thought that 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 journalism was was the way forward. I didn't know whether I wanted to do telly or whether I wanted to do radio or whether I wanted to be an online journalist or or, or what I wanted to do. Um, but ultimately, I've I've kind of ended up kind of straddling the two, so television and 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 radio, both of them. But I think radio certainly is actually my first love. It's it's just such a simple, um, easy as you will know yourself, such a clean, easy uh, medium to work in. Um, and yeah, no, it's 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 just fantastic. It's but but I'm particularly interested, I think, in in younger people and you know all my family are teachers um, literally I think every every member of my family are teachers so I thought right. I'd kind of I'd kind of um, you know uh, was going to be the black sheep of the family but I've started to sort of come around now to uh, again to to communicating to young people uh, and to just kind of reach out yes. a hand and just to yes. say listen here's a window on the world you know you're, you're as entitled to anybody else um, to, a, to, to a bit of a window oh, on I the see. world so, so that's what this is This about. is like a guilt book you've done because you, did, you didn't become a teacher like the entire yes. family <laughs> <laughs> you became a journalist and now we're in a roundabout way you're now teaching about things. It's interesting yeah. you just said there uh, that maybe creativity shouldn't go with journalism but it actually yeah. like you kind of do need to be creative don't you to, to actually ask questions in a particular way. A hundred percent absolutely. And who to ask. And, and who to ask and, and just trying to even I mean what I really love doing especially with, with, with News Today and RTE was the explaining stuff that we used to do and I know that a lot of teachers use News Today in the classroom yeah. to, try and, to try and explain these big sort of weighty subjects and what we would do was was to try and find a creative way into the story so I mean say the 6-1 or whoever might be able to say say last week that they could have said oh the uh, NATO says that it, it wants to see more weapons sent to Ukraine whereas we had to take multiple steps back and say, right, first of all, we need to explain what's happening in Ukraine. Then we need to say, what, what is NATO? Why does NATO exist? Then we need to say, right, right, what sort of support um, are we already giving to Ukraine? What are sanctions? Uh, what does Putin want? You know, so so we even had, we, we would you know often have journalists uh, from the support you know from the from the adult newsroom coming over to us and saying, how are you scripting that particular piece of of, of copy? How are you explaining this subject? Because our our bread and butter was basically just explaining stuff to kids um, in, in, in an engaging way first of all in a clear way and, and in a truthful way obviously as well so that was a really creative fun process and News Today continues I know this to, to this day to do that kind of stuff And it really breaks down those big weighty stories doesn't it? I mean we could all benefit from that from time to time Totally, uh, taking, ab- taking absolutely. Back and, yeah, and it was uh, great to hear you saying there that, that that you got something out of the book as well, because I think ad- adults, as much as anybody else, I think um, you know potentially could do well to maybe um, just learn some, some of these wee little tools that you can then apply to every new story that comes along, no matter yeah. what the story is, um, just to take those with you. Yeah. Well, you know, oddly, because I did the same course as you, journalism and DCU, but uh, I'd oh. say at, at least a decade, if not more, before you, and it kind of right. reminded me of college because it was like it, it makes you go, "What is the news? Why it should it be in the news?" and yeah. uh, asking you know you, how much information you can assume the audience has to begin with. Now when you're sure. doing news on News Today for younger people I mean you had to cover the difficult stories as you said so what, was there stuff when you were on that programme on RT oh, yeah. that, that stuck with you and how you were able to tell that story to children? 
Um, well, the, the ones that spring to mind um, certainly would be, you know, not not very nice days in the newsroom. One was the I remember the Bataclan uh, attack in Paris and the, the the Charlie Hebdo attacks in in, in Paris too. Um, yeah. Just sen- senseless uh, killing, really. Twenty fifteen, um, yeah. Twenty fifteen, and then there was of course the balcony collapse. You might remember as well with the, the the Irish students who lost their lives again. Just just a, another senseless loss of life that you have to you just have to kind of sit back for a second and just say right. First of all, you know, how do we begin to explain uh, what's happened here when when adults can find no explanation really um, behind what's happened? Those were really, really challenging days in in the newsroom, but but it was something that I think you, you kind of you have to grab with both with both hands and, and and you know this idea of maybe trying to shield kids from 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 bad news in particular. It can I would always just encourage to be as you know appropriate to the age to try and just be as truthful as possible with. Yeah. With, with, with kids and and uh, because you know especially these days the the news will reach kids one one way or another so it's it's so important just to to take a step back and to and to, to just approach it and be very honest and I remember when the, when those students um, died in, in in the balcony collapse it was very much a case of of you know we we weren't trying to do anything you know uh, we were trying to reinvent the wheel with it we just we very plain simple concise language but also reassuring the, the the young people and the kids who are watching that you know first and foremost you are safe and these things are in the see, news because yeah. they're very rare and they don't happen very often um, and 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 just trying to. To, to, to go from there but uh, those were very very hard days in, in the newsroom for sure and Covid was, was another thing that we simply couldn't shy away from because it, it, it all of a sudden kids were being told you couldn't go to you know hurling in, on, on a Saturday morning and you couldn't hug your, 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 your granny and your granddad and mm. it was it was a really urgent kind of public service that uh, that, that we need to provide in, in, in those more difficult times certainly. Uh, you hit on the thing there that these things are unusual and that's specifically why it's in the yeah. news, isn't it? And that you break that down in your book. Yeah. Um, c- well, because when things are going well, it, do- it doesn't make yeah. the news, does it? Well, it was really interesting to hear you your, your just discussing there um, the Ireland West Airport cause, and, yeah. um, and Dublin Airport because there, there is an example in the book where it's just a news article which describes the most perfect flight of all time and all the passengers <laughs> applaud the pilot when it lands and it was two hours early even though it was only a one-hour <laughs> flight and all this kind of stuff. And, and then what you were saying about you know Dublin Airport, looking at pictures of Dublin Airport on Twitter, um, obviously that makes the news because it's so you know pretty pretty horrendous situation but then you have your man in knock who was able to have two breakfasts which I just think was brilliant um, so yeah but I mean you, you, you don't I mean 99 I was saying in the book 99% of the stuff that happens in the world is good and, and the reason that, that the bad news often gets reported on it is because it's so rare um, so, so that's an, an, another thing you know for, for, for kids to remember that, uh, that, that, that when bad news happens the reason that you're hearing about it is because because it's out of the ordinary and it's out of the blue and you yourself are safe, your parents are safe, your family are safe um, and that's really what we try to hammer home as well in the book. Yeah, it's a great approach with children just to say you're safe, yeah, everything, you know, yeah. it's unusual and so on. Um, most of us grew up, we were, you know, the restricted access to the news, you know, it was coming on at nine o'clock, it was easy to kind of usher children out the door yeah. and say, oh, you know, you throw chocolates down the hall or whatever, let them chase after. But you, it's very hard to avoid it now, isn't it? It's a totally. 24-7 news cycle. 
absolutely it, it it is a course and you know when if you kind of older uh, kids you know may, may well be, be beginning to sort of flirt with the idea of social media and depending what age they are I, I guess um, news can come at them from 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 that way uh, but also then of course I mean stuff that, that you know driving in the car with your mum or dad um, or before your favourite programme or after your favourite programme your, your news can come in but, but also what you mentioned there about just kids speaking to each other this sort of real life social media where kids you know hear something from one person they repeat it to another person and you know, there are no checks there. There are no interventions of an actual journalist or someone who's maybe a bit more savvy who can say, "Well, hang on a second. Let's let's just let's unpack that for a second. So that little piece of information there um, that John in school has told you, yeah. you know, how does John know that to be true? Do, do you think yourself that, that that it's true? How does it make you feel? So what's the if if we were trying to explain it in a, in an emoji or or in an emoticon, how would that piece of news make you feel? Um, and then if 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 the emoji would maybe maybe an an angry emoji or maybe a worried emoji or maybe a crying emoji you might want to just think well okay well maybe I should investigate this a little bit further and see if what I'm hearing is actually true and it might you know John in school isn't probably lying to you he's not trying to mislead you in any way but he himself might not be sure of the facts and it can be it's be a really really simple thing to just uh, do a little bit more investigation uh, or to ask an adult that you know to just maybe check it out for you or in the tube you can have a conversation about it um so that's yeah, that that's really what 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 it kind of boils down to. Just giving kids that just the tools to just say right, let me just press pause there now and go go either do a little bit of um, just research on, on on my own by myself and checking um, the sources. Checking the sources, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. No, there's because, great easy descriptions, yeah. and I nearly think every journalist in the country should read this this page. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the the fake yeah. news, and you're looking at that. I mean, it's nothing new. Yeah. It's not new. No, it's surely not. Um, and fake news has been around uh, literally, I think, since since the beginning of time. Um, and, and I think you know, we we go into the book about you know kind of news when it started. We think of the the, the cavemen in their caves. Probably the, 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 they were there was probably fake news being being painted on the cave walls, but there, I mean news itself wasn't actually required necessarily as a, you know society didn't need news because our kind of worlds were so small and we were so based around one particular location. But as transport and as travel began to uh, become more possible, then all of a sudden um, there was you know hundreds of miles away events were happening that could very well impact on on my life. So th- th- this idea, but, but then this distortion of information um, kind of. Uh, came to the fore then so I mean in the, in the book the example is uh, is um, with the Romans were, were were fighting amongst themselves over over who would basically rule the the, the Roman Empire and one yeah. of the contenders was was Octavian um, his opponent was a uh, was was Mark Antony who you who you may well know and Octavian wrote and and published poems all about Mark Antony and how he was a notorious drunkard um, and how and he he'd be no good at at at, um, at at governing Rome whatsoever so if Twitter was around at that stage Octavian would probably have taken to Twitter and said oh my God you know, Mark Antony such a loser, sad. He'd be such a terrible ruler, and it worked. Octavian eventually uh, won the war. In fact, and and the same thing with them um, with. Um with 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 Alexander the Great, who began to spread sort of very 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 sort of early examples of propaganda, essentially, and and changed his name from Alexander the Great. There wasn't Alexander the Great in the first place, but he changed his name from Alexander the Great to Alexander, son of Zeus. Yes. So he was sort of saying, "I am actually, in fact, Zeus's son." And uh, and you know, it's 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 just constant. The, the branding worked. The branding worked. In fairness to it, and, until and, and, Colin Farrell played him in a blonde wig. <laughs> 
<laughs> Angelina Jolie, I remember that, yeah. Um, yeah, and look, at the, there are so many examples throughout history of people realising that, the, 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 perhaps one of the most important weapons that they had was information, misinformation, disinformation, uh, and, and using that to either to big themselves up uh, or to tear their opponents down. And it's, um, and I look at, I mean, it's it's only just, I mean, I, I think probably we're becoming more aware of the term fake news because in particular one former American president found a way to in fact weaponize this idea of fake news for himself. So if journalists mm. were reporting stuff that he didn't like or that made him look bad, he would instantly label it as fake news. All of a sudden nobody knows what's real, what's fake uh, and, and it, it just An attack a on the mess. facts, wasn't it? Did yes, you start totally. questioning your own sanity. And totally. the, the, a warning to politicians here because you've really, you're arming the next generation of journalists yes. with skills to spot and call out someone who just won't answer the question and there's a great... Yes exercise here you said. <laughs> well, there was a, there's a fantastic uh, uh, professor called Peter Bull who yeah. uh, which maybe some, somewhat appropriately and what, what Peter came up with was uh, this list of dozens of dozens of strategies and methods that politicians use to avoid answering questions. So in the book what we do is we, we just set up a wee scenario uh, where a reporter is asking a farmer uh, who came first the, the chicken or the egg and the farmer ignores the question just saying <laughs> oh I, I love eggs I love eggs absolutely like, eggs are great fan- fantastic the reporter again you know you ask him which comes first and the, and, and the farmer recognises the question but doesn't answer it so he would say do you know what Oliver that's a really really good question and I love <laughs> eggs especially scrambled eggs he can avoid responsibility so um, the politician can say I'm, look, look, look I'm not going to comment it would be inappropriate for me to comment on a private matter between the, the, the chicken and the egg and then the, the report would ask again and the farmer might, might attack the question and saying it, you know, the, you, it, you know your question shouldn't be this your question should be it's not about which <laughs> yeah, came yes. first it's about what, what, what tastes better um, or, or, or saying the, you know, uh, he, he might appeal to nationalism and say if it wasn't for all the ducks that were coming over here then uh, everything would be fine between chicken and eggs and there are just dozens of examples Examples of, of, of ways that politicians, um, you know, when people know we, this, this it's is very familiar sense. to us. Yeah, just, totally. Um, but, but when we actually we've break all it heard down, these interviews. Totally and, 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 and utterly, but it's, I mean, it's, it's a fantastic list. I would encourage anyone to, to have a look at it because yeah. some of it is just gas. And the book is great. It's aimed for is roughly eight to twelve, is it? Eight to twelve, roughly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess as I sort of say, I mean, all the conversations I think that we should be having with kids around fake news and, and upsetting news should be tailored in spe- specifically to, to to the kids' age. But I think eight to twelve year olds. I mean, if I was growing up, I think if I was eight or if eight or nine year old Nick had this book as a, as a handbook for you know because we're talking about fake news, we're talking about you know upsetting news, but also there's a section in the book which is all about how to be a journalist yourself, and yeah, if you want yeah. to be a reporter, a news hound, as we say. Here are all the things you're, you're, you're going to need. Here are the questions that you're, the, the, the good questions to ask. How to interview somebody. Uh, how to spot what the most interesting part of a story is. Um, as I mentioned there, how to get around interviewees who uh, who don't want to answer your questions. Uh, you know, and, and sometimes it can be hard to get your, your interviewees to stop talking, say, if you're a principal. Yeah. in school wanted to talk about what a great principal he well, was he I'm afraid I'll have talking. to get I'll have to get you to stop talking before <laughs> but breaking news how to tell what's real from what's rubbish Nick Sheridan it's been a pleasure and the best Thanks, of luck with Oliver. it Cheers, and continued you. success over in the Beeb oh thank you very much Oliver. and the All Wexford the accent is very mild <laughs> <laughs> Thanks Cheers 
Let's get to our guests this morning who are having some giddy times there in the break. Uh, and our guest this morning is a successful graphic designer and illustrator. You might have seen some of his work. In fact, I'm sure you have. But it was his decision to take a stand against trauma for the past that has led to his personal success. Well, I'm interested to hear more. Good morning, Connor Merriman. Good morning. How are you? How are you? Looking very well this morning. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> and that's kind of, uh, I'm not being um, uh, undue there <laughs> because the last time you were on here with Ryan, you were, it was during the pandemic, you were talking about embracing. Well, what do you tell us what you were talking about? Yeah, Ryan? so essentially I was losing my hair and I took lockdown one as an opportunity to shave it all off. And it's the best decision I've ever made. It's it's brought a lot more confidence to my day to day. And two years later, um, it's just I I can't encourage it enough for everyone. If if you're going through that, you know that kind of self acceptance with losing your hair. Self acceptance because you were kind of taken it badly, weren't you? Were you I was. Of- yeah, I was. I mean, I was. It's always difficult to to let go of your gorgeous locks, you know. Yeah. Um. But again, I mean, it's it's one of those things. It's one of those decisions that I made because. I could do it because it was in lockdown. I wasn't have to. I didn't have to see anyone. I could. I could risk it. Um, but it was the best thing I've ever done. It really was. It's brought along so much more confidence. Because it seems like such a simple thing. Because we're obviously mm. you think you know baldness is so common. Yeah. That uh, you'd be used to, but when it happens to you, you're kind of thinking it's very insular. It's a very insular thing, and I think we we as people kind of hold a lot of our you know importance into hair, especially as men, because you know. We we don't have a we don't have a lot of it, so we kind of keep on to it and we hold on to it. So, you know, letting go of that could be quite difficult and quite traumatic. And um so, you know, kind of reclaiming that was important to me. And uh, of course the cause of boldness is uh excessive testosterone. Mm. So that, that kind of can be a good thing. Absolutely. It? <laughs> so it's it, because you're just too manly. Uh, that's that's why. That's that's <laughs> But look, it is the because being confident is is attractive, isn't it? Isn't that what you're kind of thinking, oh I don't look as good? It is. It? I mean it all stems from very particular places, you know, I think self-confidence and self-acceptance all stems from potentially trauma, potentially other areas like that. Like, for uh-huh. example, I came out when I was 15 um, as gay and I did that kind of because I was forced to. I was being severely bullied in school, in secondary school. I missed two weeks of it. I went on the Mitch because I couldn't handle it. That's how bad it was. I just, wow. it was very, very heavy. And you were a school nerd, weren't you? So going on the, on the Mitch. Oh, that was unheard of. I would never have done anything like it, you know. And it was, that's how bad it was that I just couldn't face it, you know. And it was the type of things where, you know, every slur you could think of um, were on air, so I'm not going to say them. Yeah. But um, you can imagine it and that's what was said. You know, I was being taunted to and from school. I was, things were whispered to me walking down the corridors. You know, I, I got spat at in school. I Spat at? Yeah, like it, people made fake Facebook accounts to try and get unsolicited photographs of me. It was, it was very, it was early days yeah. social media and it yeah, was, it was a lot. Yeah, because you're a young man. So I'm 27. Yeah, tw- you're only 27. So, you know, you're in the social media, but you got, you got it at every level. Every level apart from physical. But... Well, you were spat at. Well, uh, yeah, I suppose. I, I was never I was never beaten up, you know, yeah. but that doesn't Isn't take it amazing away. that you're, you're even qualifying the bullying? As I know. Horrific as it is. I know. know. In fairness. Well, in fairness, and it's an awful thing that you kind of do go there, but at the same time, you got to find the positives. You got to find a little bit of hope in it, you know, yeah. that I wasn't as bad as I could have been. But having said that, it was absolutely horrific. You know, I got a glass bottle thrown at me um, and it's it didn't it didn't hit. But 
like those type of things I didn't realise I was still holding on to like that mm. residual trauma mm. for so it's, long it's still recent though isn't it I mean, I mean yeah it's, it's, yeah, it was 15, 15 yeah like and it went on for a couple of years it did it went on for the last three years of school it was really really bad in fourth year and um, it kind of subsidised a little bit it kind of didn't become as everyday and as big um, but I also, you know, I was very fortunate that my family were incredibly accepting and my friends at the time championed me and really, really pioneered me. Um, and, you know, having a support group like that was incredibly important. Uh, the friends in school? Yeah, I had a few friends in school and then outside of school I had a wonderful group um, that I'm still friends with today and, you know, okay. they've really, they've really stuck by me. Do you remember going home to your family and saying, I'm being bullied at school? I do, very, very vividly. And what was the reaction? Well, I stood in front of them all. Um, my sister was living in London at the time and I had emailed her because, that was, you know, it was it was over words, so it was a little easier. And um, I stood in front of my brother and my parents and it was night time and it was January and I looked at them and I was like, I'm not in school because I'm being bullied and the reason I'm being bullied is because I'm gay. And there was this huge pressure release when it happened. Yeah. And like, you know, would I have rathered a different way of telling them? Of course, you know, but I told them that's the main thing. And and, you know, they were just they were sad because of what was happening, but they were so resilient. They were just, you know, nope, let's let's get on to this. Let's we're having a meeting with the school. We're going to nip this in the bud. We're going to try and take as much action as we can, yeah. you know. Um, so it was wonderful to have their utmost support. I mean, that, that sounds brilliant from the family because the, the, mm. they had so much to unpack, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, there's an awful lot there, <laughs> you know. Because uh, number one, it's okay, you know, Connor's gay and mm. they, they're kind of dealing with whatever's going on there. Yeah. But it was quite easy for them because their main concern was your welfare. My, my safety. So, yeah. You know, that was it. You know, it was a real parental just energy. Uh, when, I mean, the bullying goes on though, didn't it, even after that? Do you know what? Like, look, it, it keeps going. I mean, there is always... There's everyday homophobia. There really is. There's little things. There's smaller things. Um, like two, two, three weeks ago, myself and my partner, my wonderful partner, um, we were holding hands walking down the road on a moving car through water at us. Now nothing was said to us, but we can make a guess that it was a homophobic attack. Yeah. And it's that type of stuff where it's just even holding hands, as you said earlier on. You know, you do kind of feel quite self conscious about these things sometimes. You really do, though. You, you? do, but. It is important to stay holding hands, you know, okay. I, I find it is because, you know, visibility is our as our biggest form of defense. That's true, actually. Yeah, That's you the know, thing I do forget. Like, but it's it's difficult in the moment, you know, fear is a horrible thing. <laughs> it is, you know, and it can stifle My partner is more kind of going from my hand. Yeah. I'm like, Ugh. And it's yeah. fine for a minute until mm. someone comes around the corner. And they could be the nicest people in the they world. They could be. But if, if but they you, do stare. Yeah. I mean, and the <laughs> thing is, though, if you have had any type of trauma in your past, if you've ha- if you've been bullied, if you've been subject to any type of homophobia, you're going to have your guard up in public. You're going to mm. want to reserve yourself, you know, because of fear it happens again. But I do want to reiterate, I think it is important for us to, you know, stay visible and stay seen. I want to come to the kind of more recent stuff, but mm. can we go back when you're 15 and yeah. you're, or, or even later in school? I mean, when you're confronting that time now in your mind, yeah. 
do you get pangs in your? Are you able to kind of confidently go, look, that's part of my story, or do you still get pangs of, oh my god? Do you know what? Do we sometimes we can get really morose? Yeah, absolutely. And think very angrily, and we can get stuck in the yeah. kind of rabbit hole in our heads. Absolutely, you can spiral. You absolutely can. And I didn't realize that, like, there were moments where, yeah, that actually was coming to the forefront, and I didn't really realize what it was. And last year, I had a bit of a wobble mentally and because of anxiety and COVID and I think for all of us no matter what your circumstance was last year was a bit of a difficult time for us all just the you know the unknown yeah. um, but I didn't realise that I was also holding on to that level of trauma as well from school um, so I went to therapy and I'm in therapy and I think it was really important for to reach out and ask for help you know I, I I was a child when it happened I didn't have the coping tools I didn't have the mechanisms I didn't know your world is so small you know, so you can only do your best and you either flight like or freeze or, you know. Yeah, there isn't always fight or flight. No. There's, there's the freeze. The freeze. I, I, tend to, I tend to freeze, yeah, yeah. you know, and of course, and it's difficult and it's unknown. And so I went, to, so I started therapy and it's been one of the most incredible things I've ever done. It's really gotten me to open up, to be, you know, to address certain things that I've, I've been build, uh, holding on to, um, to really have a bit of comfort with my past and and to not feel so burdened by it and so afraid of it emerging if it ever does you know I'm I'm kind of living beside it you yeah, know yes because at that time I mean I as I said there was very little coping mechanisms that you can kind of you know at your disposal but one thing that I did really lean in on was my art and my illustration and creating that form of escapism you know yeah. I really and you had a wonderful escape I had a wonderful escape it was I mean it was it absolutely blossomed you know I I just buried my head in my work and I went to NCAD and now I'm working professionally as an illustrator and it was it's one of those things where from something quite horrific that's something nice for me came from it isn't it but they say this don't they that trauma can be very creative it can be I mean like you a, have to wreck your brain in order to free it or something look it's 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 a difficult one because I think you know there's many different ways that your brain can kind of go to in those moments and I was fortunate that I went to creativity and I've always been drawn I've always have and I've always been encouraged to yeah. do that um so it was it was a very natural form of escape that now I'm very lucky to say it's my career and a, and a very successful career. Yeah. And we should say, by the way, you were coming in to talk to us anyway. Yes. Um, because of your amazing success as a as a designer and an illustrator. Mm. And um, so now is the time to blow your trumpet. <laughs> I mean, Don't be Irish about it now. Uh, Tell uh, us what sure you've look. been doing. Um, so, yeah, so I, I work with wonderful, wonderful um, clients, both in the UK and Ireland. I work with Lighthouse Cinema, um, doing all their visual campaigns. I've worked with um, Leah Restaurant, which is now a two mission star um, yes. restaurant. In Black wonderful. Rock in Dublin. Yep. There. Um, and most recently I've just worked on um, a greeting card range with moonpig.ie um, which is just launched in Ireland just launched in Ireland yeah. it is yeah and they were an absolute gem to work with and the great thing what they did was they had utmost trust in every designer illustrator they got in touch with to really echo that Irish voice yeah. um, because they're a UK company and they really put a lot of trust and a lot of warmth in commissioning illustrators and designers to really evoke that sense of authentic Irishness, yes, and and it's wonderful if you if you get a chance to go into the collection, it's it's there's there's cards for every occasion. It's really really fantastic, and um, Disney. Yeah, I've worked worked at Disney as well. Yeah. That was West Side Story, was it? It was, yeah. Um, the Spielberg remake. 
yes, I was commissioned by Disney to do a poster for West Side Story, an illustrated poster for West Side Story, which is now Oscar winning, which is, I'm going I'm to take <laughs> See, that I one. I knew I'd have to drag that out <laughs> of you. So you're, been, you're a bit, bit too Irish about it. Ah, sure. Uh, so, yeah, no, it's, so it's a terrific. It, it seems like you got your power back, doesn't it? Because Does it, bullying makes you feel powerless. The, your parents feel they can't do anything to help. The school often feels powerless as well. Is it, was that the experience at the time? Do you know do you what? It's a very depowering moment. Mm. It's a very depowering thing. And right now in my life, I feel incredibly empowered, you know. And if there's any LGBTQ plus youth out there, teenagers out there that are listening and that are feeling inadequate or feeling like they're lost or like they can't be themselves, you know, I just want to let them know that it does get better. It got much better for me. You know, you have to be unapologetically yourself. There's only one of you. Yeah. You know. You have to keep holding hands. You have to keep holding hands. You do. (laughs) You have to be visible. Was there a thought in your head when you were coming out and and it was amidst the bullying storm and everything Mm. that... And it goes through everyone's head when they're Mm. coming out. Will the parents accept? Will you get thrown out of the house? Do you know what? It's, as I spoke of earlier, it's it's the fear. It's the fear that can stifle you. And, you know, at the time, I unfortunately had an escape plan absolutely baseless an absolutely baseless escape plan but I was absorbing horrific stories you know of people of youth being kicked out and the media representation of it at the time and my brain just went to this absolute oh oh, oh, what if they don't accept me where where, where will I go I'm I'm 13 I'm 14 I'm like where where is this and you kind of make up this ridiculous escape plan that made absolutely no sense at the time and I never had to use it because of course I didn't my parents and my family were wonderful and still still are yeah um, do you think about your bullies? I do. You know, I you probably see them around, do you? I, strangely enough, I don't see them that much. Um, which, I mean, look, I will say, towards the end of school, some of them did reach out to me privately and apologise for, for acting the way they did. And that was a really, I'm not going to say it was an easy thing to happen, that exchange. Mm. It was a very difficult thing because on one hand, you want to, absolutely forgive you want to move on you want to see someone has made it their effort to kind of you know say sorry and to say I was in the wrong and that's a huge thing and on the other hand you want to go you made my life miserable yeah but acceptance has to happen yeah and and forgiveness has to happen you know for your own self forgiveness is for yourself more than anyone else and again it gives it that's you with the power that's you with the power exactly and that's the thing you can do and I suppose if someone's been bullied uh, and there are parents probably of kids being bullied at the moment it's usually, the, the problem is with the bully, isn't it? Mm. And that's probably what you discovered. It's interesting they come privately to you individually. Yeah, yeah. Because as a collective, <clears throat> their, their insecurities, well, they're insecurities. Well, that's the thing. I mean, there's power in numbers. Mob, aren't they? There's power in numbers, you know. There's that that hive mentality there. And it's it's horrible that it's so common that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, I don't know, trust in, in conviction if you're if you're part of a mob. You know, you don't have to, you're not single, you know, there's, you can kind of get away with a, m- a lot more things. And so it's funny in those vulnerable moments when you come as as a single entity to apologise. It's funny, they didn't apologise on behalf of everyone. They apologised for of their course. own actions. And that's the important thing. Yeah. You know? That was quite big. That's unusual, I would say. That It is. I mean, I, I would hope it's, <clears throat> I hope it's not as unusual anymore. I hope it doesn't happen as much in schools. Yeah. Um, one would hope. Um, it's eternal though, isn't it? Oh, look. Unfortunately. I, well, I hope... I hope. <coughs> what do there, we do? What do we do about the homophobia, the casual stuff on the street? Because you get fleeting moments, as you say, yourself yeah. and your partner. There's not much you can do in the moment, is there? You can... I mean, look, I'm not one for, you know, retaliating. That's not my vibe at all. No. Um, 
And I don't think violence is ever the answer. What I do think is the answer is staying invisible, staying seen, because you have to be unapologetically yourself. And why why would you hide? Why would you want other people to have the power over your life and over your love and over that blossoming, wonderful you? You know, it's you have to just stay resilient and keep going. I mean, that's a great message. And the fact that you, you have your power back and yeah. there's no insecurities <laughs> about hair or anything. No, so not at all. <laughs> uh, and um, what, where can we see your amazing work? Oh, yeah. Um, my, all, my, all my work is on my Instagram at Connor underscore Merriman and on my website, ConnorMerriman.com. Uh, you'll see it all there. It looks great. Oh, thank you very what, much. What do you mostly do in, in terms of what makes the most, you know, what, what kind of runs your business the, the most? Illustration. People, people buy stuff and hang on the wall and everything. Yes, yeah, so I, you know, illustrated prints. I work in the film industry. I um, work in fashion. Um, mainly illustration, a little bit of branding here and there. You know, work, working with people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's great. It's fantastic. And I think what you're doing actually is part of that campaign. You better, do you want to mention your partner's name or anything? Or is he likes to stay in the kind of shadows when it comes his, to this public? His, his name is Adam. He's a wonderful, wonderful <laughs> man. And he's the love of my life. Thought we, thought we better mention that because yeah, that'll be the, the stuff. But listen, Connor Merriman, thanks a million for coming Thank you in. For having me. Continued success to you. Thank you very much. And could, uh, more power to yeah. you, which is the important thing. To part. us all. We'll take a quick break. Thanks a million, Connor. Now, our guest this morning is in studio with us, has had a lifelong interest in military history, particularly World War II. As a journalist, Joseph McCabe has interviewed many war veterans, but he remembers one particularly fondly because it inspired him to write a book. It's called Rebels to Reels. It tells the story of Daniel A. McGovern. It's an amazing story. It's about a Monaghan man who photographed and filmed the aftermath of the nuclear bomb attack on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. So a topic that's not entirely suitable for small children, but Leaving Cert students will find it, I think, useful and very interesting. Author Joseph McCabe is here to tell us more. You're Joseph McCabe on the book, but you're Joe, aren't you, Joe? I am indeed, Oliver. (laughs) Well, good morning and thanks for coming in to us. Thank you very much. So Dan McGovern, he's an Irishman. How did you come across this story? I got a phone call one morning in my capacity as a reporter in Carrick McCross. Our local Mm -hmm. historian then, Marita Hughes, telephoned me and she she knew I had an interest in this sort of stuff anyway. But apart from that, she said, Joe, there's a man down here in the library, she says, I think you just have to meet. And I said, who's that? She says, he's Dan McGovern, but just come down, you're going to have to meet him. And I said, fine, that's grand. I said, oh, oh, bring your camera. Down I go anyway and walked in and she, she... motioned over to this very, very tall man standing in the library. Yeah. She just introduced me to Lieutenant Colonel Daniel A. McGovern, as his card said later, retired. Okay. This immediately got my interest, given the interest that I so had. So he's a striking his, figure. He, he and, was and he six tells you, foot five tall, yeah. big striking man. And did you find out his story pretty much straight away? He just said he was an Air Force colonel and that, and he's, the first thing he said to me when we sat down for an interview was, you know, he says, I was rare in this town. Now, this is amazing, isn't it? Because you obviously didn't know about this. No, no. Yeah. I'd never heard of, of, of Don McGovern. And he said, uh, I was rare in this town. He says, my father was an RIC sergeant yeah. way back before independence. Uh, in the town here, yes, he said. And, uh, you know, I lived in the barracks in Carrick Macross up there. You lived up there? Yes, that's right, he said. And then he went on a little bit more and he said, you know, Back in the time of the Troubles, he says, I experienced all that. I said, you experienced all that? Yes, he said. He says, you know, I, I used to ride with the Black and Tans, he said. 
Oh, right. Okay. And that certainly got my interest. Those troubles. Those troubles. The 1920s. Uh, and it's an incredible story because he was obviously a young man. He leaves, he goes to uh, to America, essentially. He, 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 was a, he was a young boy then. He was, I think, uh, 10, 11. He grew up from, he was about two years of age. He actually... And joins the US Air Force. He, before that, he actually lived in Enniskeen. Oh, right. yeah, <laughs> Did you know well a few years before Tad McCrone? Yeah, yeah. Goes to, uh, he emigrates to America. He gets an interest in photography. He eventually joins the US, United States Air National Guard and he he becomes a cameraman. And he eventually goes on to become, so good did he get at it, uh, the, 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 the official cameraman and photographer to the President of the United States, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Yeah. But before that, just to backtrack a little bit, he talked to, to, about uh, filming um, uh, coastal artillery practices on, on Lake Ontario in, 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 mid, uh, up, uh, New, in New York State. And he talked about, he said there was one particular group of gunners, he says, they, were, they won everything, they were fantastic. And I said, who were they, Dan? He says, well, they were white Russians, he says. They were the Cossacks. Right. But you know where the Cossacks from? The Ukraine. So the history yes. goes back quite a bit, as you can see Incredible. there. Incredible. And um, he was in Hollywood for a period, wasn't he? He was a, he, but the reason he went to Hollywood, after he was with the president, Frank, Del, Frank Delano Roosevelt, um, he was one of the designated photographer cameras to him, cameramen to him. He, he went on then, he was hand, ha, cherry-picked, basically, to, to set up the combat camera training school for the United States Army Air Forces, as it was then. This was just after World War II. Uh, yeah. The Americans had entered the Second World War goes to Hollywood. He set up the, 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 the school there. He set up the method of how they were trained. It was a 17-week course. And every cameraman that, that, that came in afterwards, it was his school that he set up under the auspices of the United States Army Air Forces that they were trained through. McGovern himself then went on to, he was applied to England. That was in 1943. Mm-hmm. And he was in Chelveston with the 305th Bomb Group, flew six very hazardous combat missions was involved in two crash landings and then he went back to America at that stage. I mean, they were literally bombing um, fuel depots in Germany were, in the Second were, World War. They were, but more, So is he yeah. the cameraman on board? He What's was, he there were several other cameramen, but he was the main guy there with, the, with, with one of the main 8th Air Force cameramen there. And he filmed for William Wyler, but the director, Hollywood director of, of uh, later, Ben Hoare. Oh, wow. uh, he, yeah, he, he filmed on the Memphis Bell, a story of a flying fortress. And you, some people out there may know or remember the film Memphis Bell. Yeah. And that was based on that documentary. But after the crash landings, he went back to America for a spell before deploying to the Pacific. He had enough. And this is where his most fascinating contribution to history really happens. I isn't it? would agree with that totally because so it's yeah. 1945. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, can you take us through what he's doing in Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Yeah, the first thing was um, he in the first week of September. He goes in. He was he was ordered over into Japan. He was among one of the first group of Americans into Japan altogether, and his job was to assist a group of American correspondents, top flight correspondents coming in from America, that they wanted to see Japan, and it was the main thing they were supposed to be doing was to uh, interview POWs and stuff. But of Mm. course, the bigger picture was Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But but MacArthur had actually uh, uh, they weren't allowed in there. He, He 
he didn't want yeah. anybody going in there. General MacArthur, he was head of the Allied he Forces. Was the, in the he Pacific. was. He was indeed. He was the, the head of the so Allied it's Powers. Only, it's a month after. Yes. The atomic bomb is dropped on those cities. Um, so you know what's what's he doing there, and um, what's General MacArthur? You know how do, how do they keep that dynamic? Because he's nope. trying to really stop the images he didn't going re- out, exactly. He? That's more or less what yeah. happened. But the correspondence, reporters being reporters, they will find ways of getting to the story regardless of what happens. Yeah, and they bent the rules a little bit and got in there. In actual fact, Dan McGovern, as a United States Army Air Force cameraman, was the only one legally supposed to be there. Right. But he was there, and he started to film the devastation around him. And the book outlines, Rebel Streets outlines how he filmed what he saw there. That was the initial bit of it. So he filmed, he, he filmed Troy Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, Nagasaki first. And then later on, he, 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 he joins what was called the United States Strategic Bomb Survey. Mm-hmm. And under the auspices of that, he starts to film in colour. Right, right okay. through, not yeah. just Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but right through Japan. Yeah. And he spent he spent in total nine months in Japan. Filming Crucial like documenting of, of what yes, went on. And I mean, what, we should yeah. kind of put it in context at the time because obviously people are now very sadly used and quite familiar with images of devastation really after war. Yeah. But this is all quite new to the eyes of people uh, in this era. I mean, it must have been pretty shocking even for him. There were be. no images of any. Remember, this was yeah. the first and only time this has ever happened. Yeah. The American government in particular didn't want any of this get, getting out. They were a little bit cagey about it, understandably so. Mm. And he would need to see McGovern went into the hospitals. He went in and filmed the graphic stuff, yeah. which, you know, um, understandably was going to be upsetting to a lot of people. But he filmed Everything, but he also filmed some lighter moments there as well. And over, he he then went on ahead, and he went all around Japan later on. What happened when he went back to America was, he he made two he 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 found Japanese cameramen who were filming who had been there firstly yes. before he arrived, even before yeah yeah, and they had been told to stop filming by MacArthur's people. And the next thing he goes along and he says to them, "You keep filming, I'm going to arrange it." So he he makes a film gets them to make a film under his direction called Effects of the Atomic Bomb on, uh, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then he films, in total over nine months, another 100,000 feet of colour footage. Incredible. And all ends up in the National Archives, but not before it was suppressed by the United States government. Yes, so if it wasn't... Can you explain what he did to save this um, this film that could have been just he locked did. away or never seen he, well, or destroyed? They, were, they, were, they, they, made, they made a move to move to, to, to um, lift all this, this uh, footage and everything else. He made a copy of Effects of the Atomic Bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and he hid it away. In in the in the ark, he Did kept he? he kept one at home. He told me, "Wow!" But he kept another one. Dangerous, by the way. Dangerous, like yeah. it was risky quite stuff. a risky thing yeah. to do. And years later, of course, um, when it was actually um, Senator Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, w- was looking for this film in nineteen sixty seven. Right. Uh, in the in the in the um, United States Film Depository. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out anyway that she can't find it. But of course, McGovern has a plan B. Right. And finally, the film starts to emerge. Yeah, it's an incredible story because, you know, even to this day, it's the only footage we have of, uh, you know, nuclear war devastation, isn't it? It is. And it serves and as a reminder. It, of It's a reminder. And it's all in the US National Archives. And of course, McGovern told me, you know, that's all I ever wanted to do. His, his, his uh, uh, thing was not, it wasn't about him. It was about cameraman like him and about yeah. getting the story out he, but of course it was suppressed for years and that, that bothered him a little bit yeah. Amazing because um, 
you know, a young fella from Monaghan who ends up kind of keeping and restoring and maintaining this crucial documentary evidence, really, isn't it, of the It, it is. It, it, no doubt about it. it. It's the definitive atomic footage we have today. Yeah. Tell me about Roswell and his connection there. Oh, that's, a, that's an intriguing one. <laughs> Put your tin hats on. Well, he, he, Garvin told me he was in Roswell when all this was going on. And I did on research later, of course, I didn't press him too much on it, but on mm. research later, I found out that uh, he, indeed he was based in Washington, D.C. at okay. the Pentagon. Yeah. And for some reason, the United States Air Force decided to send people from Washington, when, despite the fact that there was other cameramen closer by, closer oh, right. by to Roswell. Okay. So that would fit. But years later, in 1995, a film emerged that a lot of people would be familiar with out there, and that was the Centelli, the Centelli film, it's called. Yeah. And it's a, an alien autopsy. Those of you, I'm sure people out there have seen it. Allegedly. Allegedly, <laughs> of course, <laughs> allegedly. But and Dan, he, he was asked to view this, was he? To Dan was corroborate. asked, he was, he was asked because he knew everybody mm-hmm. in the, in the, in the, in the cam, combat cameraman fraternity, as old and retired as he was. And he offered services to, to vet this footage, of course. But the full story of it, what happened or what, what didn't happen, yeah. is, in it, is in the book. Yeah, and of course he says there was no UFO. It was probably he, a handy distraction, wasn't it? Because he knew the military had things yeah, they didn't want. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he knew all about um, Area Fifty One and all these different places. He worked in all these yeah. places before they became what they are today. For example, when you met him that time, then in in the, in the library in Carrick Macross mm. in nineteen ninety nine, was he upset talking about uh, what he saw in Hiroshima? No, Nagasaki? he he wasn't really. A lot of years had passed. He was battle-hardened. Um, he had battle-hardened. He really was, you know. And, and uh, Was he back looking for his roots and where he came from and all of he that? He was. And, you know, another man that you know very well, our <laughs> local historian, Larry McDermott. Oh, yes, yes, yes. In the course of the, the, the interview I was conducting with, with Dan McGovern, he landed over and he said, look, he says, I found this, he says. And the local publican had written, written this down in, in, in some diary or something. Yeah. The McGovern family... Left today, and he said it was a dull day. But, but <laughs> and Dan, the Dan had the date wrong. He thought he left on a particular date in September. Oh right, but but uh, you, you need a local to historian to get those little. Listen, yeah. it's a fascinating encounter. Yeah. You spent years researching it. Rebels to Reels, yeah. a biography of combat cameraman Daniel A. McGovern by Joseph McCabe. It's been a pleasure, Joseph. And I should say, Rebels to Reels dot com. You can see some of the footage. You can see the footage kept. there. Yeah. The people and that's an amazing. Idea. What, yeah. what what he filmed and what he was involved in, you know. So. It's incredible and well worth doing it. Thanks for coming in and the best of luck with it. Thank you very much, Cheers, Oliver. Joe. Take Thank care. Now, when lockdown hit in 2020 and the classrooms closed their doors, the teachers and students were forced to take their lessons online and there was varying degrees of success around that, let's face it. But for my next guest, it was like a, a moonshore move that would see him catapulted to TikTok stardom. He's a teacher. Tygo Donovan, good morning to you. Morning, Oliver. How are you getting on? Oh, I'm fantastic. Sure, Friday. Sure, what all the mood would could you possibly be in? Uh, now, before we get to your massive fame online, Tig, um, is uh, social media is that something that teachers tr- tend to avoid? Yeah, it tends to be something that we don't we don't tend to spend too much time on, or we we don't tend to post too often. I think there's something about the duration. We're all kind of told, stay away from that. Now you don't need that in your life. Yeah. and uh, it was a rule I very much followed for quite a while as well. So, um. Like you said, it kind of caught me off guard when I didn't start going on to it that I gained so much traction. But uh, we're here now two years later, so it's 
it is what it is. <laughs> it's working out. And is that the kind of, um, you know, aversion to it, is that because obviously if you're teaching teenagers as you are in secondary school, um, that they might, you know, you're kind of in their world. Is that the idea? The teachers um, are nervous? I, yeah, I suppose it's kind of that. You're, you're kind of venturing off into the side of stuff that they spend quite a lot of time on. Yeah. And um, you never know really, like I think there's a, a big fear around teachers going onto social media that, you know, kids are going to start commenting and messaging and stuff like that. But done in the right way, you can kind of avoid quite a lot of that and also kind of protect the kids in certain ways as well. Yes. So yeah. um, it, when, when, when done right, everyone kind of benefits from it. Exactly. Like a lot of things. So let's just jump back a bit. So you're you're originally from Cork, aren't you? Where exactly? Uh, so I'm from Bandon down here in West Cork. And, Very nice. And, and grew up here, spent most of my life here, but... Uh, when I qualified as a science teacher in 2015, there wasn't a lot going on in terms of jobs. So like most no. people, I, I went off abroad and I spent five years then just outside of North London um, teaching in two different schools there. So uh, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. It felt like a bit of fish out of water kind of moment when I had to go abroad and, uh, and try and teach in a completely different system to what we have here. But um, loved it, loved my time over there. It was great for me. And uh, this is in Watford, isn't it, in um, outside London? And there was there a good Irish contingent there at that time then, uh, uh, six or seven years ago really isn't it yeah like what would be a very good Irish area anyway and, and pretty much in every school over in the UK you're going to find at least one or two different Irish teachers as well so we're, we're fairly strong over uh, over there yeah it's, but, a, it's um, a pity in a way though isn't it because like you come out of UL and like trained here but like nothing nothing going for you at the time and they're all over there yeah well that's the thing I suppose you go to you go to the UK, you go to Australia or, or Dubai or someplace, there's a huge, massive Irish community. And in one sense, it's very good because you know there's people there that you can relate to, that you can have, have the chat with and have the crack with, mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, they've been through it before. But I suppose in, like, in many ways, it's, you know, you're seeing a bit of a brain drain in some sense that everyone that's leaving has some sort of a qualification. You'd rather see them stay in Ireland. But, you know, travel broadens the mind as well. So I, I'm not going to ne- say there are too many negatives to it, but... Most of us do come back, which is great as well. Yeah, travel broadens the mind, so you have to be careful. You have to be careful of that. <laughs> uh, what, uh, how different is the system over there? Uh, uh, was it uh, more, less work? Oh, definitely more work. A lot, lot more work. Um, right. A lot of paperwork. It was something that caught me off guard. Was I, I thought you know you spend a lot of time teaching and planning your lessons, where actually there was so much extra just paperwork attached to everything and tracking and monitoring and trying to find reasons for X, Y, and Z and contact with parents. And, X, and it, it, was, it actually felt more like by the end of it that you were doing more administration than actually teaching, yeah. um, which is probably why they see so many teachers drop out of education over there. Right. Whereas Grinds here, there seems to be better attention other than the fact that you just see a lot of teachers when they first qualify leave the country in the first place. But um, yeah, it was one where coming back to Ireland and actually going onto social media and and doing my, my, my lessons on TikTok actually saved me from leaving education altogether. I'd kind of done five years, felt the burnout coming, and I was like, right, if I go back and it doesn't work in Ireland, I'm just going to change careers altogether. But, um, yeah, lucky for me, uh, everything seems to be working out here in Ireland so far. Yeah, and, that's, that's uh, incredible. The social so media well. that you were avoiding is the thing that kind of saved your um, your grow for teaching in many ways. Yeah, very so, much so, yeah. It was, um, it was kind of, I came back in August of 2020, kind of, that yeah. second lockdown stage and uh, unfortunately for me the teaching council was on, on super slow mode at that stage so they couldn't process my paperwork and uh, oh, right. about four or five months before they could actually get me back into a classroom 
And um, okay, so when you come on. when you come back from England, you have to be kind of um, cleared to step into an Irish classroom again. Is that yeah, the... yeah? Essentially, that's kind of it. And there's quite a bit of paperwork behind it on a normal day anyway, let alone during the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. So I was um, I was sitting at home with my my degree going, you know, you know, twiddling my thumbs, going, I need to do something to keep myself active. And I'd already started making some TikToks and doing some science stuff on there. And then I was like, you know what? Why don't I just start teaching on TikTok as well? Spend a couple of evenings a week since I can't go anywhere else. Might as well just do it from my uh, my sitting room. Basically, I had a massive whiteboard, and I said, right, we'll teach them here. And um, I just I just enjoyed it so much. We had such a laugh, and you know, taking the topics that the kids wanted to cover for their own lessons and for their own exams. I said, look, we'll do that, and I brought my own little style to it, and it was very relaxed kind of atmosphere, and it kind of it kind of got it gained a huge uh, a huge popularity on the app itself and next thing there was a couple hundred thousand people following me and I was kind of going this is this is not what I expected at all yeah. but look we'll go with it and you're essentially teaching for free there because you're as I say you're waiting for a job to come up you weren't cleared by the teaching council so you just you're just randomly teaching and it's it was open to all all kids really wasn't it yeah yeah that's exactly it I was like I had the qualification I was just waiting for the clearance and I was kind of going I need something to preoccupy myself but I also felt like I could do something more for other people and I saw from when I was over in the UK, just the amount of time the kids were spending on the app and how little learning they were doing, let's say, in their own school. And this was an opportunity for me to help kids out who actually might have wanted the help as well. Um, and rather than trying to force them to go back to our Google Classroom, I was saying, look, I'm going to head in the direction of where they're spending most of their time on their apps. Um, yeah, and again, huge amount. And there was, at one stage, there was a couple of lessons where, let's say, over the course of the hour, hour and a half I was spending on teaching, there was probably twenty to 25,000 different users coming on, watching it for a while and maybe <laughs> moving on. But, you know, at one stage we had about 700 stayed for the entire hour and it was incredible. And what what uh, kind of picked up? Like, what sort of things were you doing on TikTok that really grabbed the attention of these kids? Oh, it's hard to say, to be honest, because I've had, I've had some kind of you kind of get ebbs and flows with social media and, and how many followers you get. So at stages I've had huge growth because I was doing the live lessons. At other stages I've had huge growth because I put up some sort of science video that was really useful. And and then there might have been just something random like me doing a dance inside in school, which has genuinely happened. And now I've kind of been known for a dance. I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> this is not what I expected either. But you kind of roll with the punches. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been really exciting just to see like, you know, the different things that come along on the app itself. So all those kind of trends that are... And, and uh, dancing is a huge thing for TikTok. Oh, massive. Now, it's definitely more from just being what, what, what I suppose it was traditionally known for, which was lip syncing and dancing. And it's got so, so much more variety on it. There's actually a huge side to learning on TikTok, which is which is where I kind of existed, that, that little edu talk, as they call it. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, the app is just incredible um, with the amount of different things you can do there. How big has it grown? How many followers do you have now and all your views and all that? Oh, God. Um, I'm trying to think what the last count was. I think I'm, I'm definitely over about 320,000 on TikTok and about another 150,000 then on Instagram. So it's not doing too bad, you You've know? over half a million followers as a teacher. And, and millions of views. I mean, I've some, seen some of the clips and they're like kind of typical stuff. Some of them I remember from school. Like uh, there's one where you're, it's basically the, when the male teacher walks into a female teacher's <laughs> office and you're playing the fella, the teenager in the, in the classroom and what do they always say? The oh, so that's the boyfriend there, Mrs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, that's kind of half the fun of it is that, you know, 
and again, part of the safeguard in the teaching is that you don't want to make any content that is so specific that it's one child and that, you know, a parent could be calling and going, my, my kid says that specifically about me. So I'll try and keep it as broad as possible and, and pick things that, you know, everyone's experienced in school. We've all had that situation, like you said, where, where a male teacher comes into a female's classroom and everyone goes, oh, I wonder now, is, is there something <laughs> happening there? Or the teacher rocking up to the door going, oh, can I steal that child if that's all right? You know, or, there's loads of different it's things. It's your boyfriend, and, miss. So it's, yeah, but it's, it's a clever idea because you're kind of using comedy as a hook to um, get them in for the other bits where you're doing actual lessons and so on. That's it, that's it, you know. And, and like, there are people that follow me just for the comedy and there are people who follow me just for the science and... And that's great as well. You know, you're, you're kind of pulling them in from all different angles. Um, as long as they enjoy the content and they're getting something from it, that's kind of the whole thing I'm taking, you know, is that yeah. you're, you either want to make them smile or you want to help them learn. That's, that's the way I'm looking it's at it. It's a creative approach because you use memes a lot in your general teaching anyway, don't you? Can you? Yeah, I love, I love the memes. I'm a bit of a memeologist as well. As a, as could well you, as you, could you explain so. a meme to anyone who just may not have heard of it? <laughs> um, what's the easiest way of describing a meme? <laughs> Uh, I suppose, look, it's it's like a one a one shot picture. It might be a GIF um, where you know it's just a quick statement about something, but it's kind of done in a humorous manner. And um, it's really, you know, it's really hard to actually explain. It what is it actually. Means. I'm thinking about that. That's why I made you do it. It's kind of like a, a well known character, a celebrity who's doing an eye roll or pulling a face, and yeah, yeah. I'm, so I'm sure you're like attaching when, it to your uh, biology and chemistry and so on. I feel like I'm going to have to put a meme up on my uh, my Instagram story yeah, after yes, this. Well, so like how me trying to explain what a meme is, not actually being able to do it. But um, do you know what the great thing about doing that though is because it's kind of a little moment to have a little joke, or I can use, I yeah. tend to use it as a hook at the start of a lesson if I'm going to do it, where I'll put it up and it might be something linked to a previous lesson. Um, but if the kids understand it and they laugh at it or they go, "Oh, that's very good," then you kind of go, "Oh well, if they understand that meme." then they've understood what kind of happened in the previous lesson. Whereas if they're kind of looking around going, I don't get it, then you're kind of going, oh, okay, maybe maybe we might need to recap what was done in the previous lesson. Yeah. Come here, when you, you're doing this because you're waiting to be cleared, and eventually you're obviously cleared and you apply for a job. And when you're sitting down for your interview or however shape that takes, I mean, how do you approach the subject with the principal and say, oh, by the way, I'm a bit of a TikTok star? Uh, well, I, I wouldn't have used the word TikTok star, definitely for sure. I can tell you that much. But um, yeah, no, it was a very interesting kind of situation. And when I was leaving the UK back in uh, in July from my previous school, they were like, "Just an FYI, you should definitely mention that you've got social media to your 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 principal as you're going into your new school, just so that they're aware." And I was like, "Oh, 100." They were like, "Yeah, it's just one. Maybe even just give them links to it and just go. Look, this is what I have." Um, so that's essentially what I did when I um, I went in subbing in, uh, in a school in Cork, Cardaline Community School. Um, and the, the previous day before starting, I said, look, just an FYI, I've got a couple of the social media accounts um, that I do some stuff on. Do you have any issue with that, first of all? And they were like, no, that's grand. And I was like, OK, just another FYI, there's over 100,000 followers on one of them. Does that matter? And they were like, no, that's grand. And I was like, some of the kids from school might know. And they were like, oh, yeah, that's fine, no bother. And I was kind of going... Oh, this is very relaxed. I wasn't yeah. expecting it to be so calm, but um, I've been really lucky. Like the school, I, I've stayed with them ever since. And oh, that's Carrigaline Community brilliant. School, yeah. Just to that's it, yeah. Carrigaline Community School, and they're just absolutely wonderful. Absolutely adore the school. I just not alone just for from my own side of things in terms of 
you know, uh, being allowed to do the social media on there. But I just think they've got a really kind of holistic attitude to edu- education in general. Yeah. They're very forward thinking and I, I absolutely adore the staff that are there and the kids are great as well. So fingers crossed I'll be there for the, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, but um, Because you're a resource teacher, aren't you? So you're able to kind of, um, you know, sit down with, with kids or with the students, I should say, um, outside of the actual lessons, don't you? Because you have... The odd time. There's obviously mental health is a huge talking point uh, around the country and, and they're more clued into it now, aren't they, in school than what we used definitely, to? Definitely, definitely. So, yeah, I've kind of got a, like a 50-50 timetable. Half my classes are, are mainstream full classes for science and then the other half are resource. And um, and actually, I've got to say, the resource has been something as well that's definitely kind of renewed a lot of energy in in education for me and, and, and teaching because it's given me a lot more one-on-one time with students where I actually can actively see the, the impact that I'm having with them as well and seeing them progress on an individual level a bit more than what you might see with, let's say, a mainstream class where you have 25 or 30 kids in there. So yeah. it's um, it's it's been really interesting. It's not something that I would have thought about Quite, quite a lot over in the UK because they don't really have it over there. Oh, really? You know, it's, right. it's a little bit different, and and very much because there's such a teacher shortage over there, you have as many mainstream classes as possible. There's no such thing really as resort unless your school is very very lucky. But um, over here, it was great to kind of have that mix of both, and it's it's just brought so much more energy into what I do now. And certainly with the the kind of kids I have, I have a lot of like young lads as well who probably need a good role model in their life as well, a, a, like a, an older man to kind of give them a little bit of guidance here and there as well. It's yeah. kind of allowed me to be a bit more of a mentor as well as a teacher and I've really enjoyed that role in my life. It actually feels like I'm having an impact, which is what I got into education for in the first place. Uh, that's really cool. So you, you, you get to push the books aside sometimes and have a, have a chat about real life, I suppose, isn't it? Because Yeah, it's, it's yeah, there. that's it. And like some of those conversations, I would hope anyway, will bring a lot of meaning to them and, and kind of help them with their own lives and not just, you know, some science topic that we were covering one day that we actually go and, and you know, do something that's going to have a, a real positive impact on them, which which is great. That it literally is what teaching should be about, is just making sure that you're, you're having that, that positive impact for the future. Yeah, no, it's really cool. Um, so with all these views and everything, um, uh, obviously, there are students in in the classroom who who are going to spot you. What do they make of it in the classroom? Uh, at the moment, I, uh, well, not at the moment, but at the very beginning, they found it a bit of a novelty. But I, over time, they've just kind of gotten to know me as just another teacher, so they don't see me <laughs> differently. Right. That's it. I, at the start, it was like walking down the hallway. You know, oh my god, that, that TikTok teacher or whatever. And so I suppose for the first year, definitely, they still see it as a novelty. They absolutely love it. And they, I'll get the hype there. I go walking down the corridor, all this jazz from them. <laughs> but um, very much, I think, the older students, they kind of, they had to clue in first, uh, the older kids. They were braver and uh, and were like straight up to them. Probably within one or two days of me being there, they were like, you're on TikTok, aren't you? And I was like, I might, I might dabble a little piece. And they were like, all right, cool. And then they just got back on with like education. It was oh, great. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, but uh, I definitely get a good ribbing off of some of my, um, my rugby lads because I coach a couple of the teams in the school. Yeah. And like, they're used to me now. You know, they just see me as the raving lunatic that does the rugby with them. Yeah. But um, when we go out to like rugby blitzes and other stuff, other schools, you just see ah, kids, when some the, of the kids will be like, yeah, when oh the other God, schools see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> So they're like they're they're in the background behind me. They're all going, oh, oh, that's 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 famous Seamus there now, you know. And like I'm like, lads, leave me alone. Like you're you're ruining my rep in public. The you're making slagging. me looking cool. Uh, and the selfies then start up, I presume. Oh my god, yeah. There's been there's been a couple of occasions where I've been asked, and it kind of it catches me off guard because you know 
it's not what I ever expected from education, but it is. It's, it's heading that way now, where there's there's more and more photos, and it look it's a bit of a laugh. And look, I suppose it's no harm for kids to be looking up to teachers either occasionally. Yeah, and you're young enough yourself, aren't you? You're still in your twenties. Yeah, my, we'll, we'll say late. We'll say late twenties. Oh, very, very late twenties. So, we're, all, we're, we're we're a matter of months away now <laughs> at this stage. So your own parents had an interesting reaction, didn't they? Yeah, I suppose like most parents, when they when they're they're grown adult child who come home jobless in the middle of the pandemic, says I'm going to start doing things online. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, they they have the right, I suppose, to be a little bit conscious of what you might be doing. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it's it's been working out very well. And like uh, my my dad in particular, I got a great laugh off him at the start when I said, "Look, I'm going to start doing some things online," and his first reaction was. And is there going to be money made on? Like, yeah, so yeah. I was like, yeah. well, uh, I'm not sure yet, but look, we'll see how it goes. And then yeah. he was kind of humming and hawing. And then eventually I got a text from Mam a couple of weeks into me doing the live lessons going, uh, Dad actually has a couple of questions for you here because he was watching your live <laughs> and he didn't understand God. one or two things. So you might have to explain it to him when we have dinner. So, um, yeah, it was an interesting one. Just yeah, to see. Explain a meme from the start of. Uh, and <laughs> exactly. very importantly, it has actually, uh, you found love via TikTok. I have. I've done yeah. very well. This app has done quite a lot for me. I'm not going to lie. In the space of two years, it's, it's really turned my life upside down. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's been interesting. I uh, I kind of became a group, part of this um, like a Snapchat group of different creators from Ireland and the UK, and just a mix of really positive people who do a lot of good stuff on the app. And uh, there was a, a lovely, awfully girl that happened to be part of the group, and yeah. um, immediately she. She she took no interest in me from the very beginning. <laughs> it was brilliant. She she was like, "Who is this cocky teacher from Cork?" So um, she had no interest in me. But uh, we got invited to do some modelling with a bridal company that um, had some dresses that they were they were putting out, and it was kind of a, a friend of ours in the group that wow. put it together and said, "Oh, we're looking for or they're looking for a couple of different people. Would you be interested?" So we said we would, and um, yeah, so- basically the first time that we kind of met up properly <laughs> in real life. We're bride and groom, and we're going. Okay. You know, we, we took a look at each other and said, "You know what? This, this isn't the bad little mix here. We you know we your might introdu- have to do this again in a couple of years." Your like, introduction to your girlfriend, who we should say, Chelsea Henchy, uh, who's a yeah, massive Chelsea TikTok. Chelsea thirteen oh two is what she's probably Chelsea thirteen oh two has now replaced her surname. <laughs> Chelsea thirteen oh two, and she's got three quarters of a million followers. So she's like, you know, she's a big star. Your, your first introduction, you're dressed as bride and groom. That must be really awkward. It felt really comfortable. I was that was probably what 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 sold the deal, you know. I, I she had me from day dot Oliver. Like I looked at her in a dress and I said, Do you know what? She doesn't look half bad here, you know, she's got a good personality. This, this could be this could be we could be onto a winner here, you know. <laughs> Very uh, diplomatically put. <laughs> Not on a good Friday, but anyway, it's gone. It's gone really well, and it's for time. We're getting good um, messages in here. Super guy, what a super guy teacher Tig is. Great hope for our young people with teachers like him in our education system. So well done. And to follow you, teach with Tig on TikTok and Instagram, and you'll be in, in good company there. And yeah, uh, that's the one. And good luck down. Continue success with uh, between yourself and Chelsea thirteen oh two, which is now her official name. Uh, and hope uh, hope your comments have gone down okay there. Uh, fingers crossed. I'll have to put yeah. in the plug for it as well. If anyone wants to hear Chelsea giving me an absolute ribbing constantly, we have a podcast as well called The T's and C's Apply, where basically it's the two of us slating it. We, we, we slate each other the whole time. I think that's probably what makes our relationship great is that we're able to have a laugh with each other. 
But um, uh, we're, slagging is true love, ourselves. isn't it? It's true love. Yeah, it's a way to do it. It's a very much an Irish form of love, I think. It's, <laughs> so, it's how we do it well. Yeah. But um, we consider ourselves like the Aldi version of Vogue and Spencer. So uh, for anyone who <laughs> listens to them, we have a better version there. Come listen to us, the T's and C's Apply podcast. And on that note, open for sponsorship. <laughs> the T's <laughs> and C's podcast, the TikTok. Jeez, there's so many things going on. You wonder how you get time to teach it all, just as well as a, a decent holidays every now and again. You got, we, got the, we got the Easter break now, so this is where I'm actually playing catch-up on real-life things. So I've been flat out doing jobs all this week. And oh, very good. We'll so do you're the not, same next week. You're not just living on the TikTok. Look, look, it's been a pleasure and fair play to you and continued success. Teach with Tig on TikTok and Instagram. Cheers, That's Oliver. A place Thanks for you. very much. Thanks, man. Happy Easter to you, Tig. And, and many happy returns. 